Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Edelberg. And once again, welcome to another episode here at the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 189, and it is Masters Week. Sending well wishes to all of the previous guests of the back of the range that are at the Masters this week. Colin Morikawa, Will Zalatoris, Victor Hovland, they all come to mind. Clearly, they are favorites and will be for many years to come. But this year, I'm really hoping that Tyler Strafacci, the U.S. Amateur Champion, and Ali Osborne, the USAM runner-up, have an absolutely tremendous week. No matter how many USAMs I end up covering, the US Amateur Abandoned Dunes was my first. So I think I'll always have a special connection with these two guys. I've gotten to know them a lot better since the US Amateur. They're both tremendous supporters of what I'm trying to do here at the back of the range. Would absolutely love to see them both make the cut and then square off on the back nine on Sunday for the honor of low amateur at the 2021 Masters. So a quick intro this week. I'm sure that many of you are excited to watch the wall-to-wall coverage of the Masters. Special shout-out to Dottie Pepper. Can't wait to see what she's going to do this week. She also has a new book coming out. You might learn more about that here at the back of the range in the future. She might be making another appearance. We'll just have to see. The merch store is open, and the face coverings are back in stock. I know that everyone is getting their vaccine. We're slowly but surely getting back to normal, or at least a new normal. But I still wear these face coverings everywhere I go. Um, These neck gaiters really do seem to be the most comfortable option for me. So if you want one that has the back of the range logo on it, shoot me a DM. I'll hook you up. Hats are for sale. Shirts are for sale. Support this podcast. If you enjoy listening each and every week, your support and your reviews really do mean a lot. And remember, the central hub of the back of the range is on the website, thebackoftherange.com. Now, as I mentioned during the intro to last week's episode, I've got a few episodes banked that I still need to get released before we get closer to the Walker Cup. And I thought that this week would be a fun week to release the episode that I had with Bruce McGill. Now, Bruce McGill has amassed an incredible film, theater, and TV career that includes his role as D-Day in Animal House, Sheriff Farley in My Cousin Vinny, and his portrayal of Walter Hagen in The Legend of Bagger Vance. So I thought it'd be fun to have Bruce on the podcast, share some stories about his career and filming The Legend of Bagger Vance. He is an incredible storyteller. He's an absolute treasure. It was a privilege to have him on the podcast. We had a lot of fun. Uh, I think you could probably hear my golf and movie dorkdom kind of come out even more so than previous episodes. But um, hope you enjoy listening to this episode. Let's get started right away. Bruce, you're at the back of the range. How are you? Well, thank you, Ben. I'm fine. How are you? I'm great. And, and I, you know, I kind of have this rule here at the podcast where I try not to have a guest um, and record a guest when they don't currently have power or running water, which is, <laughs> which is why this is slightly delayed because you and I started kind of chatting and getting this set up right around the time when, oh my, right around when Texas was uh, going through their ordeal and you're in San Antonio, you're your your um, hometown and you're you're back from yep. California. So um, how before we talk about gosh, there are so many things to talk about, and I need to contain my excitement. But what um, what were have you been dealing with the last couple of weeks in San well, Antonio? It was, it was amazing. And the one thing that my wife doesn't want to hear anymore is uh, 
Well, it's unprecedented. Uh-huh. This never happens because now it has. Right. It was extraordinary. And I've, I've worked, uh, she was born and raised in northern Canada in Edmonton. And so she really is traumatized by extreme cold. Of course. And I never knew what extreme cold was till I did a movie in the winter in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And uh, I experienced uh, significantly sub-zero temperatures. And I just was amazed that anything on the planet could be like that. In fact, one day I woke up for work and it was 58 degrees below zero. And they, it, it was a news it was a news blurb on yeah, you know, CNN or something. They said, I almost remember it verbatim. They said, an unseasonably cold at mass of Arctic air has seized Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada today, <laughs> where the temperature is 58 degrees below zero. To give you some sense of perspective, the temperature on the surface of the moon is 63 below. And now a word from Coca-Cola. <laughs> I think that's verbatim. And I, I heard that and I sat bolt upright and I hate sit-ups. Uh-huh. I was in, still in bed. I would, I would leave the news on to see, you know, how, what, how to dress or, or was I even going to venture out that day if I didn't have to. And that just really got my attention. Well, it was with wind chill here in San Antonio, Texas, where it never happens. It was significantly below zero. And uh, it was it was just strange. And we lost power, of course, as, as four million other Texans did, which is also, quote unquote, unheard of, unprecedented. And it wasn't from uh, trees being blown down or broken because of ice. It was a it was just a power grid that was not ready for it. The power grid in Texas is designed to handle huge loads in the super hot summers right. when everybody air conditions. And they, they let a lot of their grid go down because it's not winterized. So they basically mothball it in the uh, summer, I mean, in the winter, to prepare and have it ready for air conditioning. But we lost power, which, of course, you're, you're, you may have gas heat, but it's uh, circulated by an electric fan. Sure. You... Uh, have no heat you have no light you have no way to well i have a car that i can charge my devices on so i finally i never thought i'd need it as much as i did but you're you know you're we we have a gas stove so i had a little you know barbecue torch thing that i could light the stove with so i could cook i'm i'm the cook in the family and we did eat well because we wanted to make sure we (laughs) we ate anything in the freezer in case it it thawed out and rotted of course yeah. Then I thought, no, we'll take it out of the freezer to warm up. It was so cold, and it was days. And then I had a job also I was supposed to go do, and I wanted to do, and I liked the guys, and I liked the part, and I liked the movie. It was the Kurt Warner story, right. sports story. And uh, then this thing, they, they kept scheduling my flights, and I think it was seven flights were scheduled by the production, all canceled. And this was in the in the cold, cold. Uh, it was a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday when it was well below freezing, you know, and, and dipped below zero. And I finally called them and I said, "Look, I, I I like your movie. I want to do your movie, but this is ridiculous. I can't get out of here." So I think you guys, there are two brothers that direct these films, and I said, "I think whichever one of you is the better actor should play this part. I I just can't make it." And they said, "No, no, 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 no. We want you to." And as it turned out, the director had gone home to Nashville. We're shooting in Oklahoma City. He'd gone home to Nashville to see his family and was also stranded at the airport in Houston. Uh-huh. So uh, they chartered a plane and picked him up in Houston. And I said, well, look, I, I, that's great, but I can't leave my wife in a, in a federally mandated emergency situation and go off and make a movie. And they said, well, we'll have a seat for her too. So hats off to those guys. 
and uh, John and Andy Irwin, good guys. So uh, we flew out of here, and the last thing we did at her insistence, she's a very careful person, was turn the water off at the street, which is, if you don't have one of those tools the water company uses, it's not an easy thing to do. It's a big old honking valve. They don't want you turning off your own water because right. they mean you can turn it back on. <laughs> so I got out there, it was nine degrees, and I'm turning the water off and opening a tap so we hopefully avoid pipe damage. And off we went to the airport and to get in a Beechcraft King Air and fly San Antonio to Oklahoma City where there was colder and they had 16 inches of snow, but they're more used to winter and their infrastructure was less, although they had they had shutdowns and power problems and broken water mains. <laughs> oh my gosh. So uh, needless to say, that was not a, not a week of golf. No, no, that was. But it was, it was unbelievable. And now coming back, it looks like the post-apocalyptic so much that's usually not dead is dead vegetation i'm talking about right and it's just so sad and i just all you can do is uh sort of sit back and see whether spring springs this year or not well i um i'm gosh i i know that um i have a lot of friends in the um dallas area and uh i've talked to a lot of the collegiate golfers down there in, in texas and arkansas and and uh oklahoma and they're uh a lot of them are struggling. They're just, they're like, they want to play. They want to, you know, get sharp and they just really don't have tons to do. You, um, obviously we're going to definitely talk about your, your role as Walter Hagen in the movie, the legend of Bagger Vance, but uh, you know, it's kind of a rite of passage for anyone that comes on the podcast. We have to learn actually how you got into the game of golf. So you pretty good story, actually. I, uh, we tell stories here. So I was, uh, I started acting when I was very young and I was doing plays at the age that, most kids start playing sports and stuff. And I, I love playing football with my buddies in the, you know, down in the, somebody who had a big yard on a, a crisp autumn day where football's on TV and it's great. And, but I didn't have any desire to go down to the field house in August and, and bust heads against some of the monsters that they breed for Texas football. Sure. So, uh, I was doing plays anyway. And that was, that was a very, you know, I took a lot of ragging from, uh, the, the people in my, mostly guys that played football in my junior high and high school, you know, they, they called me unkind things sure. as I was, uh, uh, words you can't use now, but they called, they said anybody that was in the drama department or in plays was a drama queer. Less, and, less uh, than mask, less than mask, less than masculine. Well, I kicked a few of their asses. I have to say, well, there you go. Physically. I, I couldn't stand it. I had a, I had a temper and I had skills. So then I got, then I got respect and I, when that didn't work, I outdrank him a little bit, and that was a good respect in Texas for a fifteen-year-old who can hold his liquor. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't even think I'm—I don't think I'm kidding. I don't think you are either. Uh, but anyway, it, it was a trial by fire, and so I was not playing any any sports uh, or any golf. But my father was a, an avid golfer, and really, really wanted me to appreciate the game because you know once you do become enamored of the game, it gives you so much in your life. But I had, you know, it was only so many daylight hours and I had play practice after school and not golf team practice. So I went on about my way and made my way uh, very challenging to get out of San Antonio, Texas and get to Broadway or Shakespeare in the Park or the feature film or television career that I've had. So I was pretty busy doing that. And I was living in New York at the time. And I would, you know, I was very close to my parents. and I really liked them. I never, even though it was the 60s, I never had that uh, 
you know, generation gap between right. uh, my folks and myself. It was a solid, great, loving relationship. When a, people say you were lucky, went because of what I've done as an actor, but I, I go, I sure was lucky to be born in the United States to the people I was born to. That was really lucky. And, uh, you know, they, they're talking about lucky to get an acting break, but no, man, a, a nurturing childhood and an education, you know, and, and ongoing support is yeah, priceless. Yeah, anyway, absolutely. I was, I would go down, especially when it turned uh, bitter cold in New York, I would come down to visit. I came down to visit, not just when it was cold. And uh, I, I wanted to spend some time with my father. And <clears throat> I'd either have to go to the office where he was, because he was either at the office or on the golf course. And I wasn't about to go to, he was an insurance salesman. And I wasn't about to go to the office. That didn't seem interesting. So I would go with him to the golf course. And, you know, the golf, the game, it, like it does for so many people, at first seems inane. You know, why would you, why would you spend the time and the money in the, to do that, to chase that ball around that cow pasture with that long stick. And uh, so I was there basically to get to know him. And then little by little, he said, oh, you, it'll either creep up your leg and bite you or it won't. Right. Doesn't matter. Let's go. And uh, I don't remember the specific time or what it was. Maybe it was a a chip that sank or a, a putt that was holed. Because he, he was very, uh, he was a four to an eight handicap, you know, wow. pretty good player. Yeah, yeah good player. And uh, loved it, just loved it. And uh, he would say, oh, just, you know, I'll tell you what, when you're starting out, keep score by the number of balls you lose. It's the same thing, the lower the number, the better. Sure. So, so and he said, you ought to foot mashy that out from behind that tree. You can't hit that shot. <laughs> and, uh, you know, also what he was doing was making sure I kept up with him and his real golfer buddies. Right. And then the next thing you know, for a few years, wonderful years, we were playing head to head. You know, we were, we were, you know, no strokes given. We were playing serious head to head. Every shot counts match play. And, uh, he was never happier than when I beat him, (laughs) which is, it shows what a generous man he was. I said this to a friend of mine whose father was a golf pro. And I said, I expected the same thing. I said, well, he was never happier than when I beat him. And my friend said, not my dad, boy, he hated it. (laughs) If, If I beat him, he was furious for three days. But anyway, I started playing to get to know my father better, literally. But once you have the, the bug, you know, you have the bug. And I, I didn't have clubs of my own. I would, believe it or not, my father was left-handed. So I would come down and I'd play with my mother's Lady Burke. I yeah, guess they Patty, were Jackie yeah, Burke. Uh, Burke. Or, or Patty Burke. Burke. Patty Burke, they, yeah. She had those two. But they, I think they were, she also had some um, Lady Burke, which I think was Jack Burke's clubs yeah. for women. Lady Burke's. And Patty, she had a Patty Burke couple of clubs too. Anyway, I would play with her clubs, which was sort of, silly but it, at the time it didn't matter right. but then my friend and roommate when we were doing delta house which was based on animal house jamie widows he's six foot six and uh, he woke me up one day like looming over me and said you're gonna buy my golf clubs i'm getting some inch and a half over lengths and you're buying mine i said i don't want you and i'll never forget them they were hogan apex two pure blades oh good luck and, and uh <laughs> you know they they were not not they were wonderful when you hit them well, but they were not easy to hit. But that's what I sort of started on. So you either you either give up the game or you find a way to find that sweet spot. And so I started playing and with my peers instead of just my father and his friends. And that's a whole other thing because then it then the you know the social aspects of the game with your peer group. And you're by the way in golf, your peer group can be anywhere from 
10 years younger than you to 40 years older than you. Of course. It's just uh, people that, you know, generally share, you know, it's, it's mostly people within five or six shots of a handicap because it's, you know, it's just more fun if you have a, it's competition. It's good. Even if you know, whatever level. Yeah. Nice. So, so that was the beginnings of the game for me. And uh, I started getting invited to some celebrity tournaments and, I thought, well, that's fun. They gave me a sweater. Oh, that's nice. I got a putter. Oh, this is pretty cool. And then when uh, Legend of Bagger Vance came out, I was my golf stock went way up. Oh, gosh. I, and we, that's we, when I got the oh, yeah, invitation. And I always, before that movie, I um, I wanted to be uh, have an official handicap because I always wanted to play at Lake Tahoe, at that Tahoe uh, Celebrity yeah, the Tournament. American Century. And, and you had to have an official handicap. In those days, it had to be single digit. And uh, so I, I worked down to where I had a single-digit handicap. And, and when you get that far down, you're playing a lot. And you're loving it. And uh, I played on location. Wherever I went, I took the clubs because when you're a, a, a character actor, meaning not the leading man, you have you have a lot of days where you don't work. And wherever I was, uh, there was a golf course. I mean, all over the world. Right. I'm well, talking. Yeah. It's everywhere. Yeah, I, I, that's definitely something I wanted to, wanted to ask you about. You mentioned um... – See, obviously you mentioned Animal House. I know that that is something that you are asked about in in many different um, interviews, and and anytime your an article is written, I know that they they drop the the Daniel Simpson day. Uh, yes. I think you played D Day, and you know when I told my friends and, and listeners I was going to have you on the podcast, and I I said yes, it's the guy that played Hagen in Bagger Vance, and they're like yeah, and then a lot of them were like yeah, but that's D Day. I'm like yes, I know that's D Day. <laughs> Um, yeah. and I'm not going to ask you to recount the stories of filming that in Oregon and, and, you know, you're playing a fictitious collegiate student, but you know, I've had many longhorns on this podcast. Uh, three of them are, or four members of the current team, uh, you know, the Cootie brothers and, and Cole Hammer and Travis Vick, but you, sir, are a graduate of the university of Texas. You uh, have your degree in drama and I don't know if you've ever been asked this, but what was life as a collegiate student in gosh what is this like late 60s early 70s yeah well it was pretty weird i mean uh, the first thing that happened i was my first year because i went out i had what they now call a gap year i sure i had a job doing trade shows making money as an actor and i said okay that's what i'm doing right and uh and i I went out and did that and it, it it sort of it deteriorated into something that was actually pretty good to something that was like trade shows and shopping centers you know and I said, ah, that's not it. And so I went to, you know, my father always wanted me to go to college. And he would say, well, Bruce, you can go to any school you want to as long as it's the University of Texas. Simple. Uh, well, simple. And, you know, you look back, the economics of it were, it was a great school. Don't, don't get me wrong. Right. It was a really great, still is. But in those days, if you were a resident of the state of Texas, I think the most, your tuition was like $50 a semester. Oh. And then when they fund they, when they started charging by the hour, my most expensive tuition was a I think I can still see the receipt one hundred and fifty one fifty, I think for you know and I have a degree I have a, some people would say it's a useless degree it's a bachelor of fine arts in acting, but uh, hey I made a living out of it. I was going to say it seems like you've uh, you, you've you've made a made a profit on that investment. And I'm just thinking of all the college. <laughs> all, I'm thinking of all the collegiate golfers that listen to my podcast that just heard that your tuition for a semester was about 150 yeah. bucks. They're crying in their yeah. in their ramen soup right now. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> tough racket, man. Because there's a lot of guys that play good golf, and I know a lot of guys that at their home course they'll you know there's a kid back at Lakeside and has the course record now. He shot a 61, and uh, that doesn't mean you can go take that and have it travel. That's right. 
and then you know it's very difficult that that life uh, i i'm tired of the travel that i do and i usually when i go on location it's for at least a couple of weeks you know even if it's a smaller part right but those guys are they're road warriors that's that's a road warrior and that's tough and and you know the guys that uh, start out and they uh, they they do mention it and they'll the good ones will thank whoever it was that was already on tour that helped them out and and you know gave them a little guidebook or a little directions of how you survive that and you know there's still there's so many guys that are are really good players that are never gonna you know they're never gonna scare the fedex top 30 right yeah how how do you is there any sort of a correlation between i mean like i guess it's safe to say like okay so animal house came out in 78 i'm guessing you graduated 71 72 something in that neighborhood i mean i was in college 69 to 73 okay 73 so you're so, but I'm guessing, is it fair to say that those five years before Animal House, you could, I mean, I know you're doing Shakespeare, you're doing a lot of theater work, but I'm guessing it's just a grind. It's, you're, you're struggling. Is there a correlation between, I know a lot of the mini tour guys uh, that are trying to make it professionally and play on the PGA Tour, they're dealing with that as well. Like, how do you know that this is your path? I mean, was, was giving up on acting like ever an option for you? Uh, <clears throat> well, not without trying. Right. You know, I, I knew I was going to try and I hoped I would have the uh, the good sense if it didn't work out. And they tell you, give it, you know, give yourself a certain amount of time. You can pick the number, right. two years, five years, 10 years. But the, one of the toughest things to watch was actors that you met when you were first uh, in the pro leagues, you know, like in, in your early 20s. And they were just not going to cut it. You could tell, but then they'd get a job and they'd be in for another two or three years thinking they'd cut it. And they don't really get out of it and into something else until it's too late to make much of a living doing anything else, you know. Because if you're looking to hire somebody in your company and you've got a, a, a sharp, bright, good-looking 21-year-old guy and a sort of good-looking, sharp, bright 45-year-old guy, you're going to hire the younger guy. Yeah. Nine times out of ten. So that's tough. But I, it was, you know, I kept it in the back of my mind. I, I had... Uh, I never was one of those that felt like, and I think they're lying when they say it. I had to make it as an actor because I couldn't have done anything else. I figure I could have done anything that I pretend to do in the movies. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like, uh, I feel like I could, but I didn't ever have to really. I, I, there was a struggle financially, but I never stopped working because in the theater, if you're a good actor and a good stage actor, and uh, in my case, especially if you were really, a, a, you know, a, a little bit of a head start at the playing of Shakespeare. And what I always wanted to do since I read about it was Shakespeare in the park in New York city. And, uh, this was the weirdest slip up in my life. I, I made this impossible plan dream when I was sitting on the curb in my house in San Antonio, Texas, I was maybe 16, 17. And I said, I want to be on stage Shakespeare in the park, New York city with a speaking role by the time I'm 25. And, you know, that was sort of giving myself that much time to to at least get on that path. Right. And the slip up was it happened. And at 20, I didn't make a plan past that. So there I was at 25 and this, this uh, you know, modest goal looking back on it was achieved. And so I was rudderless for a few months while I, while I made a new, you know, a new North Star to, to keep the thing cruising through the rough waters on. But I, I always worked enough. Um, one one month I had to sell one of my guitars to pay rent, but it was a guitar I didn't like very much anyway. And I, I uh, that's the only time I I and I never had to, you know, beg, borrow, or 
anything from my parents, which was really surprising to my father. He, he just couldn't believe that. But I lived, I lived very modestly, you know, and not, not, not like the young players uh, in the golf world. They have roommates. I had roommates, you know, in, in New York City. My God, I don't know. I asked a guy when I was there the last time I was doing a movie, and I said, how does a young actor move to New York to become an actor anymore? And he said, oh, they don't. They moved to Jersey. Because you, oh, okay. but we were we were three guys in a one bedroom apartment, and it was okay. We were young, and it's a you know I had the greatest time in New York City. In the I was there from 1975 to 92, and that was the you know before cocaine was bad, before AIDS, right. and women had been on the birth control pill for 12 or 15 years by then, and they were in the beginnings of the female movement, the women's movement, and they were very aggressive. And once you'd done D-Day and Animal House and, and some Shakespeare in the park, and you had enough money to buy dinner in your pocket, life was really good. <laughs> it was fun. I can imagine. It was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, now I go and I go, my God, this is, I only go if uh, somebody hires me and gives me per diem and picks me up at the hotel. But I had a great time there. It was great. And anyway, I think there is a parallel, but, uh, I never really had to I never had to wait tables because I was doing a repertory theater in Providence, Rhode Island. And I got an audition for Shakespeare in the park, which was still my target, you know, going on. So I was always trying to find a way to get there. And uh, I got the audition and I was doing a play in Providence, Rhode Island, where that repertory company was. So on our dark day in the theater, the, the word dark day means uh, you have a day off. Right. You work six days a week. So I went down on a train from Providence to New York and auditioned for a production of Hamlet, and I got the part. Didn't get it right away. I had to train down like three separate times until I only had like 150 bucks left in the bank. And I bought my last train ticket, and I said, okay, the, the season was over in Providence, and I said, I'm not coming back till I know one way or the other. And I went to that audition, and uh, the man himself, Joe Papp, who was a towering figure of the New York theater at the time, uh, was at the audition and he gave his approval. So in my third, I think it was the third audition for that, I got the part and I was, man, I, I just felt home. I was so comfortable in New York at that time. I was so excited and it was, it was great. And I, because I had a great teacher at the University of Texas in the playing of Shakespeare, by the way, he was 95 and 96 years old. Oh, wow. And he was, I would say, uh, certainly one of the top three teachers I ever had. Uh, from you know formal teachers I, everybody teaches me when i work with the great directors or whatever but he gave me a real head start on the playing of shakespeare and in shakespeare in the park in joe papp's world the public theater he did a lot of uh, you know casting of people that maybe they were on a soap opera and the people the public knew them but they didn't have the chops and you know a shakespeare to play shakespeare really well you have got to have the chops it's like you can't go out never seen a golf club and shoot 68 yeah. you just can't do it so uh, I, I had an interesting skill set. So I, I never had to wait tables or I moved to New York on a Tuesday and started rehearsal on Wednesday morning. And uh, then that play moved to Lincoln Center. And then Joe Papp and his organization wanted me in the next Shakespeare in the Park because I had the skill set, you know. And, uh, and then uh, John Landis saw a production of Shakespeare in the Park and said uh, when he was looking to cast D-Day in Animal House, he said, oh, all my, he'd scratched out all the actors that had come in to audition for D-Day. 
and he he realized that uh, when the studio said, "Look, you start shooting in a couple of weeks, you have to cast that part." It's a pain. It's a principle. And he realized that he'd been auditioning in a in a an ineffective way. He was having the D-Day auditioners read Bluto's part, which is Belushi's part, right. John Belushi. And it just, uh, so he was scratching them all off his list, saying, no, 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 no. And so now he was under the gun, and he happened to go to Shakespeare in the Park one night, and the next day the studio said, cast that part. So he had this list of scratched-out final callback actors, and he said, okay, who's the best scratched-out actor on that list? Oh, Bruce McGill. I saw him in Shakespeare last night. He was really good. And that's how I got, according to John Landis, anyway, that's how I got the part of D-Day. Unreal. So, so I went all to Shakespeare. Anyway, so one thing led to another. And the struggle years, my mother used to say, uh, God, you've worked so hard and you've been so patient. But it never felt like that to me because there was always movement. And, you know, if you're a, a theater artist anyway, every new role is a whole new world. Same in the movies, but in the theater, everybody goes to work for the rehearsal period and then you all do the play every night. And in the movies, you know, you do you do your bit and they do their bit. And sometimes you can be in a movie with people and never see them. But in the theater, it's a very, uh, you know, you get together and you have a, it's a family for a while yeah. and, uh, or a team, whatever way, whichever you prefer. So there was always movement and an ever widening circle of contacts and friends. And, and, uh, you know, it's just a great learning experience the whole way. And by, by the way, still is, I'm 70. I just got back from doing this movie and, and, uh, Although now, usually what I learn is that I, I know more than I thought I did. <laughs> I, I, I have learned something over that that you know long period of time because movies, especially, there is a, a real technical skill set that just helps. It doesn't make you a great actor, but it makes you a much more effective actor. And if you have the talent and the energy and and that stuff that's unquantifiable, your your uh, chops or your skill set or your technique, whatever you want to call it is really helpful and it's really helpful to younger actors and young directors to have an actor that really knows his way around the camera and uh, you know and around structure and story and all that stuff and i've uh, I, in terms of teachers in my life every great director i've worked with i've learned a lot from so it's a it's been a gas and it's a, it still is still feels great and i still like to do it and they still hire me which is that helps too know, yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I, I'm sort of, I feel like uh, when Paul Newman said it, I totally understood it. People said, when are you going to retire? When are you going to retire? And he said, I'll retire when I can't do it the way I want to do it anymore, which basically means when I can't remember the lines. Right. And uh, I, I will say that uh, the older you get, the more, you, the harder you have to work to learn the lines. But I'm a, a huge believer in the, the, it may not be the most important part of the task, but the primary meaning you've got to have it you have to learn your lines it's not fair to the production and the other people on the crew and in the cast if you don't although there are a lot of actors that are good actors and they have given good performances that that don't feel that way but they they got some uh, crew people tearing their hair out i'll tell you oh i can i can only imagine what that world must be like when when not everyone is actually performing at Ooh. the uh yeah at the same level yeah. you i really um what what i picked up uh i mean picked up a lot of things by what you just said but just something as it relates to to golfers where you're you're 
keep you're, you're staying in the process because you see movement. You didn't feel like it was hard work. You didn't feel like you were struggling because you were seeing movement. I think that's the right. perfect thing to tie in. And also, now we know the answer to the trivia question: What does Shakespeare and Animal House have in common? So <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> we, we have, that's good. We finally have the answer to that. It's almost like a very odd six degrees of Kevin Bacon. That's uh, very funny. No one. No one who doesn't hear this podcast will ever guess it. So you'll drink for free all over the place. Well, I mean, come on, Bruce. I drink for free wherever I go. Come on, it's me. Um, yeah, but no. Yes, so do uh, I. Exactly. I'm sure you do. But so, you know what? Uh -huh. As I said to somebody in another interview and they really laughed, I said, you know, free stuff is not worth what it costs you. That's, see, that's very true. Yeah, free. True. I, yeah, free. You get, kind of get nervous with free the older you get. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we talk about Bagger Vance, I always try and at least get something from my guests that could be a, a lesson for listeners, uh, how they can possibly uh, relate that to their game. And, and you've already given so much uh, already, but um, dealing with rejection in your career and also dealing with failure in golf have a lot of juniors uh, that are, you know, whether they're trying really hard to qualify for USAM or get noticed by a coach, they can get a scholarship. You know, golf is, as you know, it's a game where you fail more than you succeed. And yeah. you're in a profession where you're being told no over and over again for, you know, the many years you've been an actor. Um, and most, as you said, you know, for reasons that you can't control, you're too tall, you're too short. You don't like the sound of your voice. Um, how how have you dealt with rejection in your career, and and maybe how does that relate to dealing with adversity on a golf course? You know, it's kind of kind of related, well, but I'm just curious. How you well, I, I have to refer back to what I said earlier about the difference between uh, making it as an actor and making it as an athlete. Right. It's subjective. What I do is subjective. Uh, they can't say, well, that was interesting. Was that was that a a birdie or was that an eagle? Right. I don't know. But in the in the games like golf, you. You, everybody watches and you have to be very honest or you never get to play professionally. <laughs> yeah, of course. You know, you, you counter strokes and you either, you either made a three or you didn't make a three. So it's a little different that way. But um, the, the rejection or the disappointment in not getting where you want to be, uh, as long as you feel like there is movement and it's, and it may be sideways, it may even be, you know, peaks and valleys, you may plateau and then you may drop back when you make a change or something. And uh, it's just, you just, the individual has to always examine the choice and, and the belief because you don't want to, you know, believe in yourself when it's folly. But that, that you only learn over time because you never know after, you know, how many years in the wilderness is a, a, like a football term that Dick Vermeil used when he was coaching. I just did the Kurt Warner story and yeah. he asked Kurt Warner, how many years were you in the wilderness? Meaning he was great in college and then nothing for five years. He was stacking groceries. And uh, Vermeil, the same thing. He was out of the out of the game for a while, but you you know the rejection part of it for me, I have a different solution to because I can just say when I go in and do the work and do the preparation, which I always do, besides the general preparation of my whole life, I prepare specifically if I'm going to go in and lay it out there for somebody who's a who might or might not buy me for that part. Um, if they if I do a good job and I know that they were entertained if they were supposed to be entertained or startled if they were supposed to be startled or amused if they were supposed to be amused. If I do that and I know it was good and I know that, it, you know, I can tell it's like music, you know, when you hit a clinker note, right? I know when I got every note and it's good 
And then if they, and I get the call uh, from the agent, eh, it's not you, they're going another way. I'll go, God, that's unbelievable. They could have had Bruce McGill for that much money and they didn't. Wow, that's crazy. Huh. So uh, I, I do that. And, uh, and, it, and I'm not kidding either. I mean, I really feel that way. Then sometimes, of course, I'll see the final um, product and go, you know what? They were right. Okay. That, that, guy, that guy was better at that part than I am because uh, I have a certain you know, essence and his essence is a little different and a little more right for the part. But, but always when I, because there's no point in, in wallowing in the rejection. It's just, okay, next. In fact, the agents come up with all kinds of ways to tell you, you didn't get the part. Like it's not going your way today. Uh, they, they're going, well, it's because of this. And when you're a young actor, you go, why, why not? Right. And, and now I just go, uh, no is all I need. Thanks. <laughs> not, not you. Yeah. I not, just, yeah. Not, not your day, kid. Yeah, we don't need all the so, dressing. Just give me the name. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So I, I uh, and, uh, you know, at this point in my life, because I'm a very careful uh, money manager, and, it, and that's an interesting thing about managing your money. I was, even before I had any at all, I was, I, I never had, I would never like, when we get paycheck from uh, Shakespeare in the Park, which was next to nothing, I wouldn't go out that night. I'd go out the night before payday if I had any left from the last payday. Smart. And, uh, it's always, it's Benjamin Graham, who was uh, Warren Buffett's mentor. It's uh, always live beneath your means, save and invest the difference. So I started on that track a long, long time ago. So, you know, I can afford to not get jobs. I can afford to not do jobs if I don't like them. So now I'm in a great spot where I don't, uh, very few exceptions. I auditioned for Steven Spielberg for Lincoln because he asked me to. And I, you know, there are people that if they ask, I'll go, sure. But for the most part, uh, mostly I work by offer now. And it's interesting. When you work that way, you generally get the better parts and the better deal because yeah. they, they came after you. And uh, so now the rejection is – I don't have much of it. I uh, th- I get disappointed and in, in stuff if, if I don't get an offer on something that they're – because, you know, you'll find out they're circling. You know, they're sort of interested. And you, you, you let yourself get as excited as you can get. Right. But it's out of my hands at that point. Right. And then the question is, uh, can can you make the deal? Like right now, I'm talking about a thing that I'd really like to do if it wasn't shooting in Canada. But in the time of COVID, I'm 70 years old, leaving my wife here because they won't let her travel across the border. You know, she's down here. We're trying to build a major construction project here. And, uh, you know, all those kind of things come into it. If it was in Georgia or in shooting in Texas, bam, I could go home for two days if I needed to. But I, I really have to decide, and I really want to do it, and it's, uh, I don't know. In fact, that call that just came in was from my agent. He probably wants me to crap or get off the pot about it. But, <laughs> but uh, I'm still working through the other impacts of uh, leaving the country, and it's a four-month job. That's a long time. Yeah, absolutely. So so I don't know. I'm still working through that. But the, the rejection thing, uh, I don't have much of that anymore. But when I did have it, I, I, ha- I found a broad-shouldered, manly way to deal with it. Because if you if you don't do that, you don't have the stones. You don't have the stuff for it. Right. Because yeah. it's it's you don't need just the skill set and the talent. And I'm speaking about golf now too. Sure. You also need a kind of heart and a kind of indomitable will that uh, will will enable you to climb over those obstacles. I'm thinking now about Walter Hagen. I, there's a wonderful book. All I really needed. I knew who Walter Hagen was before I even knew they were making a movie of it. But there's a great book called The Walter Hagen Story by the Hague himself. And it's a, 
interesting juxtaposition of stuff written with a ghostwriter by Walter Hagen about himself, and then interspersed with that, his chapters written by his fellow competitors or sports writers of the day. And uh, it's just fascinating to go back and forth. And his early days, he was <laughs> he was a drafted baseball player. The Detroit Tigers drafted him. So he was a – and, you know, if you ever look at pictures, there's not much film of Hagen, but there's stills. And you can see that his lead foot, his left foot in his case, is pretty normal at address. But if you look at him after impact, that left foot is pointed straight down the line of play. Right. And he pivoted it, and almost like stepping into a batter's box. But in the beginning, I mean, he was a he, he thought he was talented and all that, but he got his hand handed to him when he tried to get into the U.S. Open at first. And then he was a, a winter employee at the Rochester Country Club of Rochester, you know, keeping things, taking care of things. And he he was determined, so he got a rule book and he learned the rules better than anybody else, and he used that to his advantage. And he also learned to not dress quite like a Yahoo that he had when he first tried to qualify. Of course, apparently he apparently he looked like a gypsy gigolo. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he definitely made his um, made his mark in in gosh every single way you can possibly fathom in the game of golf. How did so? Oh. So this movie comes out in two thousand. Um, and I mean, these are some serious heavy hitters. I mean, Robert Redford's directing it's Jack Lemons. I love how Jack Lemons, it's his last appearance on film. And, and he was such a fixture at the Crosby at Pebble Beach. Oh, of course. I just love how, love that piece. And then, you know, uh, Charlize Theron, Will Smith, Matt Damon. And then I, I know that, uh, it was Lane Smith's last, uh, uh film appearance. So your, your co-star in my cousin Vinny. Yes. And um oh, Lane. Yeah, I know. That is so good. Um, he was a character. Oh yeah. What um so how did you mention, you know, that that now in your career you're not really auditioning, you're getting a lot of offers. I mean, you do audition, but you get mainly offers. Um I don't know the history of how this comes your way. I mean, I'm I'm thinking Well, that one was there was no offer there. I very interesting actually. I knew the book. I had read the book and I knew who Hagen was, but I was oh, yeah. in my sailing phase at the time. I did a lot of blue water sailing. And when that film was casting, I had just bought my first sailboat and I bought it in Hawaii and I was sailing it back myself. It was a 39 foot, six inch Danish built kind of a Grand Prix ocean race boat, really very Spartan, but really strong and really fun. And so I was at sea for um, 19 days, one hour and 25 minutes. I don't know why I remember God. exactly. Oh my God. And uh, this, this boat had no autopilot and no refrigeration. And it was myself and two other guys. And it was an extraordinary adventure. And when I got to the land in L.A., you know, I didn't even have my land legs yet. And I got a phone call and uh, said, Robert Redford's looking to cast this role. And you had to be single-digit handicapped with proof sure. to audition for either the Bobby Jones part or the Walter Hagen part, which thankfully I was because of the Tahoe deal. Yeah. And, uh, and you still had to have your swing videotaped and shown to the PGA master professional who was a technical advisor, Tim Moss, great guy. We lost him a few years ago, but he was great. And so Redford would sh look at the tape of your swing and say, okay, is that a, is that a golf swing? And in my case, he said, yes, that is. So then it was a, it was a no brainer. I mean, I, I, I never really went in to see Redford because he was already in Savannah, Georgia. I went in and did a video conference audition. My first and only, by the way, <clears throat> And uh, I'd said my lines in a uh, office building in Universal City, California. And uh, 
the casting director was in Savannah and she recorded it, burned a disc, took it to Redford and less time it took, than it took me to drive back to my house in Marina del Rey from the audition. He had looked at the disc and said, that's the guy. So I walked into my house in uh, Marina del Rey area and uh, got a phone call like a few minutes after I get in and he said, uh, he was an English agent. He said, is Walter Hagen there? And I oh. said, no way. He said, way. So then, uh, you know, I, in that case, I, I wasn't even interested in the number. I didn't care yeah. what the number was. I was going to do it. And that's another, you know, the thing about the business of being an actor. There's lots of reasons to take a part. It's not always just the money. The right. money's always in there because as my agent will tell me, yeah, 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 Bruce, but you don't need money for this job, but money is respect. So we've got to, whatever they have for that part, you got to get. I say, okay, great. You worry about that. But you take it for the role, like the Hagen role. I would have taken it. You take it for where it shoots, Kiowa Island. Hello, not bad. I was gonna you say. take it for the people involved. Hello, Robert Redford, Matt Damon, Charlize, who I love. Um, you know, there's lots of reasons to take a role, and and in that case, they all kind of rolled into one, and it was just a. Uh, people always ask, "What's your favorite movie you've ever done?" And it's impossible questions. Yeah, yeah. I have a handful, so that's. Animal House, Legend of Bagger Vance, my cousin Benny, always Lincoln because it was such a classy, classy job. And Matchstick Men, Ridley Scott movie that I loved. And I have Cinderella Man. I got a bunch that I'm really, actually, really fortunate in the number of quality projects I've gotten to be in because that that requires uh, judgment and selectivity. Somebody once asked me, she was smart enough to answer her own question in mid-question. She said, referring to all this different kinds of things I'd done. And she said, how do you get a career like that? You pass on the money, don't you? And I said, yes, you do. Huh. And sometimes you just say, no, nope, that's a money job, but this is a better job. Yeah. And, uh, and that was just, you know, obviously, again, subjective. It's a judgment call on my part. Now, but so it's, you know, it's strategic. And I would, I would imagine there is a, there's a certain kind of strategic approach to trying to get on the tour. You know, and you have a, there's no shortage of guys that can play golf. I mean, the college programs are bumping out guys. It's just incredible. Oh, yeah. When you, when you watch the, you know, the NCAAs and all that stuff, these guys can play golf. And, and uh, so you have to plot a course. You have to be strategic, I imagine, because I know I did. And my strategy now, now looking back on it, it was a successful strategy because I'm, I'm, I feel good about where I am. You know, I, I feel, I never wanted to be the guy uh, with the big million dollar smile on the front of people magazine. I never wanted to be famous because it's a, you know, it's a two edged sword, but the, the sharper edge is the bad edge as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Especially in the, in the time of social media. So I often refer to myself and I'm not, I'm not dissing myself. I refer to myself as undercover actor. Cause <laughs> so people will say, Hey, Oh, oh yeah. I, hey, Hey, you're that, you? you're, yeah. yeah, you're that guy. You're, you're that guy that played that part, aren't you? And I went, well, um, I Maybe. don't know. That's kind of that's kind of vague. But the, the best ever, this was the best. And I have a witness. My wife was sitting in the airplane with me. We were in the, uh, you know, first class section of an airplane going somewhere. And uh, a flight attendant, <laughs> she comes up from the back of the plane. And she says, and I'm not lying, she said, there's somebody back there that says you're somebody, but you're not anybody, are you? And I looked at her and I said, no, ma'am, I am not anyone at all. There you go. And, uh, you know, I, in a way, I, in a philosophical way, I'm not. I'm just a, a guy that does a certain thing. But the way she said it, I mean, 
I don't even think she realized. No, no, that's quite how that came out. That's that's perfect, but though. It, I thought it was a just the greatest question for me to give a great answer. No, ma'am, I'm not anyone at all. I'm nobody. I'm nobody. I am not anyone at all. What? But anyway, I, I also I think that that uh, enables me to be believable in more and varied characters. If they oh, don't yeah. know me, Bruce McGill, they can buy me. Although now, you know, I've been sitting in movie theaters. Sometimes I used to go pre-COVID, obviously to watch a movie that I was in, in a regular paying audience. And I was in one of them and uh, right behind me at my first appearance in the film, the guy behind me said to his buddy, he said, Oh man, Oh, there's this guy, this guy, this guy does something every time he's in a movie, he does something, something's going to happen with that guy. And I thought, well, that's interesting. That's... And that's, I think that's part of what makes me hireable. It's a, a known unknown quantity. That's a really you know, bizarre, you know that's a bizarre compliment. I mean, you have to take it as a compliment. I mean, that guy, he that guy does something at every that's yeah. Well, another guy said, and this is me blowing my own horn, it's like uh, somebody there were several of us sitting around and somebody complimentarily said, Boy, you really you really get some good parts. And the guy standing next to him said, He makes parts good. Boom. And I thought, yeah, that is right. I look for I look for when I'm looking at a part, I look for does it have what I call ammunition? Is there anything in it? It doesn't have to be a big part, like the right. inside or another one of my favorites. Is there room for you in it? Yeah. Is there is is there something I can do that right. uh, it's got some pizzazz? And does it is it directly affect the main storyline? Because I'm a supporting actor, meaning I support the filmmaker in his attempt to tell this story the way he's got it on the page. And and you know I'm I'm cheerful and I like it so much that I'm fun to work with. I'm, if it was a golf deal, I'm not the I'm not the miserable golfer with his head down grumbling. I'm the I'm the, the happy joyful player. What did um you you I could tell that you're doing a lot of research with with all of your roles, and, and I'm guessing you know you said you knew Hagen pretty well, but but you mentioned the the, the book that you read. Um, help me out. Is there something that you learned about Hagen that maybe you didn't know or that people wouldn't know? Obviously, you know I'm not saying you actually applied it to the to the role, but in your research, what was something perhaps interesting about Hagen that you didn't know? Um, well, I didn't know that he was such a pure professional. He never shot. He never hit a shot uh, for fun. Somebody said, and he was also a master match player. He would uh, he would make the difficult shots look easy, and the easy shots look very difficult. If he knew he could make a shot, he was a showman. You know. And I'll tell you one thing that I did not know that is very impressive was I did know that he had knocked down the clubhouse doors to get pros to be able to go into the locker room and right. the nice clubs in the world. <clears throat> and that was very important. And that endeared him to the, to the golfing world. But he also, they, they wanted him to play exhibitions. This was just after world war one. And uh, so he said, well, I'll tell you what they were. I'll tell you what. I'll play your I'll play in your event if you put up some ropes and charge people a quarter to get in and we'll give the money to the Red Cross. So he was the beginning of golf and charity. And if you looked around every golf tournament you see, they get the guy that's sponsoring it, CEO of the company sponsoring it, of course, talking about what they've done for charity. And and also the fact that he, he was known as a partier and he'd show up late for tea times and stuff, but a lot of times he he knew he had that going on and he was working everybody. He would he might have been uh, you know, he'd put his jacket or something under his couch and sleep on it to make it wrinkled and show up in a tux that so people would think he'd been out all night. Right. And although sometimes in the beginning, I believe that he was out all night. And uh, 
he was just a, he was a really good guy too. He started a golf club business and he started in Longview, Florida near Orlando. Yeah. And it was the days of hickory shafts, you know? So he was a terrible businessman because he was very busy still playing golf, but he always paid his people. He would never, even if he was not making any money. So he was, you know, emptying his own pockets. So a businessman that knew him, um, said look let's let's take this i'm going to show you how to make money there's no reason walter hagen club should not be a money maker so hagen said okay great so the guy said first of all we got to get out of here we'll move it to arizona and uh, of course these wooden shafts that they spent from florida to arizona the lack of humidity they all shrunk and the the, the shafts were shrinking and falling out of the hosels and and uh Hagen was just he, he he stood behind every set, apparently. But it was a bad it was a tough lesson. And then he got involved with Wilson and Wilson said, Look, you know, we'll do it. You you know, if Spalding, who's a baseball player, can have a golf club line, you'll have a golf club line. Right. So then he got he sort of just became a an endorser. But he was just a really fascinating, interesting guy and uh and uh, and he fought a hook. I didn't know that. He had that weird ropey swing and he fought a hook all his life. So and I just a uh, just a no quit in him and a, and a master ice as uh, somebody said about it. Oh, he was cool. He could relax sitting on a hot stove. And uh, Paul Runyon tells a great story about him. One of the days that he was late for the, the tea time and they, because they really wanted him in the, it was a big event, a four ball of some kind. I don't remember the event, but Runyon was very young and just starting out and he's there and he's paired with Hagen and he's excited. Then Hagen doesn't show and he doesn't show. And now Runyon is really disappointed. And the, the people that put on the tournament said, well, we'll just move his tea time because we've got to have him. So he shows up late. He's got his shoes in his hands. He changes on the first or second tee, picks up on most of the holes on the front nine, saying in, in his bon vivant way, oh, Paul will play him on this hole. And uh, then Runyon looked down, shook his head and said he went six under on the back. Yeah. yeah so he's just a great, he was a cat, yeah. just a great cat. Do you now you when you're filming this movie, you know, I know that like for Tin Cup, I know that Peter Costas and Gary McCord, they worked a lot with uh, Kevin Costner. And, you know, Joel Gretsch was the actor that played Bobby Jones and you portrayed Hagen. And uh, I don't think it's a, 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 you know, revelation here that, you know, nothing against Matt Damon, but uh, did not get the feeling that he was an avid golfer at the time. Um, <laughs> no, boy, I, you know. He had the will, but he didn't have the way yet. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember. I mean, I've seen the movie countless times. It's like, nope, but that's, uh, that's, nope. a, that's not him. Um, well, this is why Redford intelligently, and Redford is a great, smart guy. I really liked working with him. That's why he said there have to be single digits with golf swings to play right. Hagen and Jones because they can't have non-golfers. I mean, right. they'll forgive Matt because he's so pretty when he smiles and all that. <laughs> well, and it's and it's and, it's, <laughs> and he yeah. tried hard. I mean, he practiced till his hands bled, but. Well, but you can't learn the golf swing in five weeks. And especially he played a lot of baseball and you know, that's, that's really a recipe for hitting out of the top. Oh yeah. And it's Juna. It's not a, it's not, you know, it's not Hagen. It's not Jones, but I mean, no. but you, but the one thing I want to ask, you know, you're, you're in Kiowa and you're, you're basically, you hit, I believe you hit every shot on film. So there was, not, I did. Okay. So I had no double, but you're not, you can't really roll up and, and, bring your Callaway Big Bertha and your ping irons. Um, that's <laughs> no, not, we, ha, ha. that's not going to work. <laughs> so like, was it, I'm just curious, like, you know, right. Hickory is kind of a thing now. People are kind of you know getting back into it, but 
how difficult was it for you? I mean, you got a swing, you got a game, but how difficult was it for you to be like, okay, what's this thing in my hand now? Yeah, well, first of all, they don't go as far, well, even if you hit them really well, unless right. you're Bobby Jones. And they're uh, they have a very sharp leading edge. These were these were not just hickory; they were period hickory. Right. So uh, I I came to really like the uh, short work clubs, you know, the the wedges and stuff, because they would cut the turf and and I I was pretty good at finding the middle of the club face. You have to you have to get close to the center. It was even worse than my Hogan Apex twos that I started with. <laughs> so you had to hit the center. Um, and they, they were I liked the irons okay. The woods were really tricky because uh they're wood and they were they were whipped. They were right, you know, uh, whipped onto the shaft, which is also wooden. And I'm not, not gonna tell a story on me because I you know, I could Joel and I could hit them fine. They just wouldn't go as far as our you know, our big bertha as you put it. Right. But uh Matt broke five of them. Because he would hit him in the neck, and some of the mornings there right. in Kia were were quite cold. chilly. They were cold, and if you hit that thing in the neck, uh, you know you'll snap it. It's you got to be in the sweet spot of those on, a, especially on a cold morning. And uh, the poor prop guy who would source these things, some were were replicas, but some of them were actual clubs he found in Scotland. Oh God! And uh, he'd say to, I remember this one morning, the poor guy. I think he'd already broken two, and he came up to Redford and it was a par five and, and said, um, could, could uh, Matt maybe hit a, an iron off this tee? And Redford looked at him like he was crazy and said, right. it's a par five. Of course he can't hit an iron. It's a par five. Okay. Uh, but you know, he was running out of uh, play clubs and drivers. Okay. So now hold on. This just, this just triggered a question for me in the scene. Gosh, I'm really showing my, 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 golf movie dorkdom right now but hey that's why i have a golf podcast so it's okay but in the, <laughs> but the scene where it's very windy in that match and he is basically hitting kind of a driving iron two iron is there any reason that that mo- that part was added to the movie that is maybe consistent with the fact that matt damon kept snapping necks off of woods it's possible but i'm not i, I couldn't verify that okay. i don't know that i'm trying to think now it's a long time since i read the book that may well have been in the in the okay. book Okay, I'll have but, to uh, I'll have to reread. But um, no, and, and you know, I was usually when uh, when we were out there, people said, "Oh, you got to play golf all day already." I said, "No, we didn't. We stood across the fairway while Matt played golf." Okay, well, that's and, why I was and made ask. eyes with Charlize. There, well, I mean, I, she actually she is next on the podcast. I'm going through the whole cast, oh. but you, you, no, I'm just kidding. Oh, but, she's yeah. just give her my. I just love her. She's just great, and she was she wasn't the big star then that she was now, and she had a little. You know, she was a little grumpy about the southern accent and stuff, but I just thought she was great and looked so in that period stuff. Oh, she yeah. just was a vision. Yeah. And she's just a great cat, man. She is a, you know, we were all there at Kiowa and it was, you know, a dangerous long drive to Charleston and, and there was a pool table and uh, that's what we did. We'd shoot some pool and I just think she's great and, that's... and that she's blossomed into such a, a spectacular. Uh, actress and producer yeah it just makes me feel great so tell her hagen says hello uh, if you really think that i'm talking to Shirley's theron i mean come on now but that's okay um what what is well, uh, well now i think you're a liar well well i mean i mean <laughs> no i was gonna say that's a pretty good get if you're uh, <laughs> hey if i can well i think you're a pretty good get i'm just saying so uh, i you mentioned this this watching golf all day long or watching matt play golf all day long you know, you have a lot of scenes away from the golf course. I mean, we just mentioned, you know, Shirley's Throne and, and 
you know, you're, you're, um, I love that scene with you and her character, Adele, when she's recruiting you to play in the match. And, oh, yeah. and then, of course, the, the great uh, cocktail party scene with you and Damon, where you're basically recruiting him to be your sidekick and go on the road. Yeah. But those are indoor shots. And as you said, yeah. controlled with lighting. But on the golf course, you know, very hard to control the elements, whether the lighting's not right or it's windy or it, you, know, you have to be consistent. What is, I know it's kind of tough, but like, what's it? What was a typical day like when it was golf day, so to speak? Like how um, we got pretty lucky. I mean, the day that I had to get in with the alligator was very cold. Right, that, okay. that was a. But I was glad about that because that makes a, a big swimming lizard like that lethargic. Right. And uh, but it was usually pretty good. And the, the only thing that was really problematic were the little biting gnats. These no see oh, they call them. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, I had those thick wool. Uh, socks with my plus fours and they could bite me through that Ugh. and uh so that that was what i remember being untoward otherwise it was just fantastic i i just loved being there and all those golf courses are spectacular and and to such they were so hospitable you know and it's a cliche of the south but but uh kiowa and that you know that was also a golf movie that cared about golf and it wasn't a, yeah. it wasn't sending golf up it was a, it was a great experience and uh that course, the ocean course, which I played quite a bit when they were doing the mushy stuff. You know, they were talking about off course when they were doing the romance. Right. You had a choice. If you were there, you could either be flown back to L.A. where you, I lived at the time or wherever you lived. Or you could stay in your room at the resort, in Kiowa. Uh-huh. And it was a no-brainer. I, mean- and I just <laughs> stayed there and played those courses. And it was great. Even on days when I would get finished before totally dark, I uh, would go to one of the courses and and they'd say, good afternoon, Mr. Hagen. Would you be looking for a match? Oh, and I would God. always say, yeah, bring me one of those flat bellies out of the back that I can beat. And let's tee it up for a few hours. Oh. And it was just, you know, they were, everybody was having fun. We were into it. We were enjoying it. And, you know, I figured as much golf as I could play could only make the performance better. I mean, that's, it's basically research for your role. You're just – Absolutely. That's all it is. I mean, and that's how I deducted everything. Yeah, because you cared <laughs> about the movie. You cared about – redford's vision that's well then you know with golf uh, it's it's good to stay in golf if you're going to be a golfer you stay the guys that are really golfers although it with the exception of bruce litsky who'd hang it up for six months oh, and go leaky, drive race cars leaky leaky but uh you know when i was there i wanted to stay in the golf head and uh also it was just it's so much fun and joel and i would play each other a lot and that that was fun he's a great guy with a beautiful golf swing yeah and uh, we had, you know, we called each other Bobby or, or Walter. And, and like again, that's working camp. on the role. It's like it was golf. fantasy it's camp. Fantasy golf only, camp. It was fantasy golf camp, only they gave us uh, money and, uh, and identical rental cars, which cracked me up. Oh, gosh. It's because you know, it's a lot of big agencies involved. And if you've got guys playing Hagen and Jones, you can't have one guy with a better car than the other guy if the production is providing the car. Uh-huh. But I mean, they could have been a different color. Well, they yeah. were identical. It was so funny. That's crazy. Um, it's crazy. You mentioned earlier about traveling, and I definitely I had this on something I wanted to ask you. You, you kind of alluded to earlier when you go and travel all over the world, all over the country on different jobs. I'm guessing you're bringing your sticks because there's a golf course nearby. I know this is almost impossible to answer, but can you maybe pinpoint one? job that you've had one role where um the the off 
you know, the, the, the downtime, you were surrounded by a golf course that was almost just like too good to be true. Like, I can't believe they're actually paying me to do this when I get to go play golf here. Well, my cousin Vinny, when we were doing some of the stuff in the little town with the courthouse, uh-huh. uh, we were staying in this golf resort. I forget what it was called. But it was on Lake Oconee. Oh, and, Re- uh, Reynolds Plantation? I, it was close to Reynolds Plantation. Okay. Reynolds Plantation acquired this course. What was it called? Anyway, it doesn't matter. But I would wake up uh, to the sound of uh, the, I think it was the eighth tee was right by my room. So I would wake up and hear the crack or, or the, the thud of a shot landing. And that was pretty great. It was a Bob Cup course, a really nice course. And uh, that was pretty great. And everywhere I go, you know, whatever the course is, if you go out there on a day off, you know, you're, everybody else is still making the movie, but you're a character actor who's not the scene that day. Right. And you go to a little golf course. I'm thinking of Valdosta, Georgia now, a place yeah. called Twin Lakes. Okay. And you find out where to go for the best meal, oh. you know, you know, where not to go to stay out of trouble. And you, you can learn everything from the locals that are hanging at the golf course. And you go to the pub links and you can almost always find a game. You know, a lot of guys, a lot of my friends, uh, they'll call ahead and they'll have their agents arrange for some private country club to let them play there. But uh, I, and I don't take my clubs much anymore because I'm it's such a chore now to travel. Yeah. You know, I, you, so I don't really take I'm thinking if I do this next job, which is long and out of the country, I think I will. But um, you you play with the, the locals and you learn the great thing about being an actor on the road. As I said, you're there for more than four days of a tournament you're there for as much as like in bagger vance it was 12 weeks and my cousin benny was probably six or eight weeks so you get a real feel for the the area and the people and uh that that can only uh broaden your character and deepen your understanding of humans sure sure uh, you know i i just i want to ask you a couple of random ones you know you, you've made a career entertaining people on obviously movies and theater but also entertaining people on tv and i'm guessing that you're just like the rest of us you've uh, found your way onto a couch on a saturday or sunday afternoon and watching golf on tv i'm not going to make you a commissioner for a day but you know if you were so to speak an entertainment consultant for the pga tour what would you make it how would you make it more entertaining to watch you know what I, it, it absolutely fascinates me i just think uh, th- that they do a great job and uh, I would, uh, God, I'd have Ken Venturi back and I'd yeah. have stuff yeah. like that. I I think they do a great job. And I mean, I know because they, no offense to other countries, but the way the U.S. covers golf on television is extraordinary and, you know, world class. Just the camera work. And those, there's a great story about Trickenian when he was first televising golf in the 50s, I guess, or maybe yeah. the early 60s. Yeah. And uh, he had a camera operator who, who didn't really play golf and didn't know. And Tricanian's yelling at him to get the camera, put it on the green, on the green. And the guy says, it's all green. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know? So uh, I think they do a great job. And I, I'm in a situation now we've cut the cord. We're in this in the building process. So we're in sort of a temporary house that will eventually get redone. And we we don't have cable. We have uh, internet and, you know, Netflix, etc. But I don't get the Golf Channel. Oh, and that, and I don't get CNBC, and I, I am bereft. So, I just think the Golf Channel should be on the internet. Yeah, that's all. That's all I would say. And I'm sure that if you have a certain kind of internet, it is, and you can do it by paying more. But uh, 
not that I don't have the dough, but my wife would go, really, you're going to do that? <laughs> I go, nah, I guess not. But, I, you know, interesting. And now that I it, I only get to watch it like I used to when it's on the weekend on a, a network. Right. And it's usually only do it if it's a, a major uh, tournament I really want to watch, like uh, Colin Morikawa's great win the last week. Yeah. I really do appreciate it because I was watching it too much. It's like a junkie. You know, just sit there and I'll watch all four rounds of something. And, and in a weird way, uh, I found it's just a building drama. And if it's a good tournament and it comes down to Sunday, the back nine, God, the investment of time you've made, you're really into it. It's yeah. like, a, it's, and it's cathartic when good things or bad things happen. It's, it's perfect drama because perfect drama, you don't know what's going to happen. You know what they're trying to do. And I, actually the best analogy I ever heard for a, a a real drama in the theater is a football game because you know what the offense is trying to do. They're the antagonist. They're the protagonist and you know what the defense is trying to do. They're the antagonist. They're trying to get him to, to not do it, but you don't know how it's going to play out. Yeah. And uh, that rivets us if it's close. And so that's what uh, in the world of drama, what we try to achieve or what I try to achieve is just uh not lot not let them know what's going to happen until it happens and and that holds their attention and then like or not like what happens they've had a cathartic experience which is what I, our excuse for being in the theater and movies absolutely fascinating um well bruce i uh, i'm gonna close this out by uh telling you a, a little bit of a story which you probably well i'm, I'm sure you do not know this so Obviously, you have played. Uh, you've been in other sports movies, not just Bagger Vance. You have. Uh, you played uh, Coach Dan Darwell in the movie Wildcats with Goldie Hawn, where <laughs> where I learned about such riveting, riveting lines such as "knock his dick in the dirt" and um, "bubble his snot." And search yeah. his jock. So as like a 14, 15-year-old <laughs> kid, I got to see that on HBO. I'm just curious, where did you go to emotionally to capture those lines, uh, Bruce? Well, where some of those came from uh, my experience with coaches in Texas. Uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. Uh, bubble, bubble His Snot came from a, <laughs> a, a, a you know pro football guy that was a consultant on the movie. Uh-huh. And uh, and some of those I heard growing up here in Texas. Sure. Uh, knock his dick in the dirt. I <laughs> I didn't want to say that. I thought that was just you know I, like you know that's just not necessary. No. We don't. And Search's jock was scripted. So. Of course, but it was still funnier than hell. So anyway, funny, but, yeah. but but that movie and then uh, the perfect game you're in. But now here is a, a trivia question or a trivia that you do not know. You played the role of manager Ralph Houck in the movie 61, which is basically the the story of uh, Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle chasing down Babe Ruth's um, home run record, and Ralph Houck was the manager of that team at the time. What you do not know is that Ralph Houck was a childhood neighbor and friend of my grandfather in Lawrence, Kansas. Wow. The major. Yes, the major. And I still yeah, I, have I, and I still have somewhere autographed baseball cards when Ralph Houck was the manager of the Twins in the mid 80s, I believe, somewhere in that neighborhood. But wow. yes, you played uh yes, so so That's and, great. And still I wouldn't know that. Yeah, and still Houck, uh, you know, the the Houck family still friends uh with my family up there in, in Lawrence, Kansas. So uh when I saw that Claims. I so that's yeah, cool. I like that movie a lot. That's another one that, except it was an HBO film, so it's yeah. not on my best movie list. But 
Billy Crystal did a great job, as did Barry Pepper and Thomas Jane. Yeah, I like that movie a lot. Yeah, me too. I loved, I loved playing that guy. And I'm going to close on this note, because this is very important information for you to have, Ben. Okay. If you do a movie and you have to chew tobacco, don't let them tell you licorice will work. It melts before they get the cameras rolling. Exactly. Same with Tootsie Rolls. Uh-huh. So, you want so you pitted prunes. Pitted prunes. Okay. Because it, it stays all day. It spits like tobacco. It gets strings it and everything. But you want to, the punchline is you want to make sure your trailer is pretty near for the bathroom. Gotcha. But really, it's true. Pitted prunes. Because nobody can chew tobacco 12 hours a day. <laughs> That but is that's a, what I was chewing. That's what I had in my cheek. There is the Matrix. Wow, that is that is that's, I mean, inside movie secrets. I love it, um, <laughs> Bruce. Uh, I can't thank you enough. This was uh, everything and more of what I expected. I knew we were going to get some fantastic stories on, uh, you know, not only Bagger Vance but your your illustrious career. And uh, get 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 the golf get the golf clubs out soon and go play some golf and uh, hope we can do it again soon. Okay, Ben, anytime. It was a pleasure talking to you, and good luck to you. And to all you guys out there trying to chase that white ball for whatever reason. And there you have it. Special thanks to Bruce McGill for joining me on this episode here at the Back of the Range. Don't forget, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Enjoy the Masters, and we'll see you next time here at the Back of the Range. <laughs>